0: there's almost this feeling of like exceptionalism, right? With, oh, they're bound to do great things or, but sometimes our purpose is to just be here Mm. and to just be human beings that are making it through day by day. And hopefully day by day we're learning and we're growing. And I think that's been a journey for me to take to get to that point to be like, My my purpose is just to be here.
1: Hey everyone, this is Ashley Menzies Babatunde and welcome to another episode of No Straight Path, the highs, the lows, and the lessons learned. No Straight Path is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. We are digging into the human stories behind success and my hope as always is that you lead the conversation inspired, motivated, and excited about your journey. I hope you're all well, and thank you for joining me today. I just wanted to remind you all that I am hosting a virtual talk with Kristen Turner about how to trust yourself with your own life this Saturday, January 21st at 10 a.m. PT and 1 p.m. ET. We're going to delve deeper into our personal stories and provide tips on how to move towards a life that is aligned with your authentic self. So I really hope to see you guys there. The link for the event is in the show notes so definitely check it out. All right, I am excited about today's episode. I had just a beautiful, honest conversation with my friend from college, Jessica Salinas. Jessica is Chief Investment Officer at New Media Ventures, and as CIO, Jessica is responsible for developing the investment strategy, cultivating early-stage deal flow, and portfolio management, building mission-driven partnerships, and leading the growth and direction of the investment team. Previously, she was a partner at an impact fund moving the world towards zero poverty, zero disease, and zero pollution. Jessica was also the founding social impact lead at Headspace and the founding director of the Stanford Latino Entrepreneurship Initiative Education Program. She has a strong background in activism, and she actually serves on the board of Words on Cage, which provides programming for incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people in LA. She's also on the board, Plug, in South LA, a network-supporting black and brown entrepreneurs. Jessica received her BA in communication from Stanford and her MS in social entrepreneurship from USC Marshall School of Business. And I am just very grateful for Jessica's vulnerability. I know her story is going to inspire so many people. I can't wait for you all to hear it, so let's get to it. Right. I am so excited to have Jessica Salinas. Thanks so much for coming on No Straight Path. Thank you for having me, Ashley. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. Yeah, me too. Me too. So first, just a quick check-in before we dig deep into your childhood. How are you? (laughs) How are you feeling? How's your heart? How's your soul? How's your mind? I love that question. And I feel like I am
0: settling into the day. This is my first conversation of the day. <laughs> and so settling into the day, but heart feels good. I had my parents here and we'll talk a little bit more about them. But I had my parents here this weekend and it was nice to have them both in my space and just taking them on a tour of LA food. So I feel full
1: of love. I would love to learn more about your parents, learn more about your family, your upbringing. So tell me how you grew up. Tell me about the value system that was instilled in you, perhaps how your childhood self shows up in who you are today.
0: I really love and appreciate that you start with that question because I feel like sometimes we just start with professional, right? <laughs> and our identity becomes that. And so I appreciate that that you start off with that because I feel like I am not me without my family. To answer your question, I come from this great big Mexican family. I always say I am the proud daughter of formerly undocumented immigrants who sacrificed a lot for me to be able to do the things that I do now. Mm-hmm. And I'm eternally grateful for them and as I've grown and and reflect on who they are and who they were and who I was and who I am now, I see a lot of myself in them in that, you know, my childhood, I think at the time, was I saw it as normal and now I reflect back and realize that it was not. <laughs> so <laughs> I, you know, grew up in Texas. We were one of the first immigrant families to move into this neighborhood in Spring, Texas, so it was very white. I only knew when I moved there, I was four or five years old, and I only knew Spanish. (laughs) So Spanish is my first language. I was the first one born in the United States. My older brother was born in Mexico. I was very smart. I knew how to read and write and speak very well, but it was all in Spanish. And I went to the school in Spring, Texas, that was mostly white people and had no bilingual program. So essentially, my mom didn't know how to drive. The closest bilingual school was miles away. So my parents were just like, here you go. (laughs) 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 I can't help you. (laughs) You got to go. And I think of that experience and I laugh because again, I didn't know in that moment how abnormal that is, right? (laughs) It's a place in a, a school where you don't know the language, people don't have the same background as you, and you just have to make it work, right, because of the circumstances. And so I laugh, but I feel like that has almost been replicated through every part of my life, just being thrown into situations where Mm. you don't really know what you were getting into. And you actually didn't even know that anything was abnormal or risky about what you were doing and then making it work. And that comes back to your question around values. I think that was a value that was instilled from my childhood, right? This Mm -hmm. resilience from my family i think a great sense of independence as well of yes you are surrounded by a beautiful community of people and uh, showered with love. But at the end of the day, they can only support you so much. And somehow you're still going to have to make it work. And there's a beauty in that independence of understanding that you are an individual and there are things that you're going to have to figure out on your own. But I also think that the other aspect of my childhood that informed who I am now is maybe not so pretty, right? I grew up in a Mm -hmm. alcoholic home, at that time was filled with, you know, domestic violence. And I was also in a home with a family of undocumented immigrants. And so there was a sense of external fear that we lived with, right, of any point your family could be separated. If someone finds out that you're undocumented, that they're working, etc., you could be separated. And that was a very real fear that I understood very early on. And then there was like internal fear at the same time, right, of your home is not necessarily safe for you and for the people that you care about. And there's a friction in that you should feel safe at home and you love these people, but you don't necessarily feel physically safe or emotionally or mentally safe and there's harm being done. Mm. But because of this external fear of family separation that can affect everybody, you can't necessarily seek out the resources that you should or get the support that you should, nor do you even know what kind of support you need at that age, right? And so I think understanding that at a very early age definitely has informed my career choices in that I've always wanted to help, right? There's something around. I understand that there are situations that cause harm or there are situations that exist that are different for every people and some of that is unjust. And so how do I make my work meaningful in providing either safe environments or better environments for people that don't have access or don't have opportunity like my family didn't. So I think those are a few things that stand out from my childhood. So like the resilience, independence, but also the desire for safety and for helping one another. And I know I talked about like the bad side of that, but there was also beauty in the situation, right? Like, Mm Jay Cole says, there's beauty in the struggle, (laughs) right? I think a lot of my family did show up during those years, right? And a lot of my actual, you know, family, my Dad's sisters who never like turned their back on us, even though it was their brother, right? Who showed up for my mom time and time again and us. There's also the community that I grew up with in terms of like friends Mm -hmm. and friends from church, but friends from school too, who embraced me with open arms and really demonstrated like that care and almost selflessness time and time again. And this was teachers, it was just like friends that I met in middle school, high school that just were so kind and so loving Mm -hmm, when they didn't need to be. And I think an example of that is I got kicked out of my house my senior year of high school. (laughs) Long story. (laughs) (laughs) I got kicked out of my house and it was friends who took me in. It was friends who opened up their homes, didn't charge me rent, right? And allowed me to get through school. They would wake me up and drive me to school with them, right? Did my laundry and never charged me one bit, mm-hmm. one dollar for doing that. And that value of community and showing up, I think definitely is something that I strive to live by even today. And, and I hope shows up in my personal relationships, but also in the professional work that I do. And so I'm eternally grateful for those lessons and that beautiful side of a situation that could have been so much uglier.
1: Thank you so much for sharing that. It's like showing the whole humanity of your experience, like the really challenging parts, the hard parts, but then because of those challenging parts and hard parts, you're able to see the love that people can bring to your life when you're at one of your most challenging moments. And those are the things that really, really stick with you. And it certainly informs who you are. You are the person who is out there marching for other people's rights. You're doing incredible work. You're helping people. Can you tell us about that pivotal moment in your career that really set you on to this trajectory of where you are today?
0: I love that because there's so many ways that we could take that that question and In terms of the social impact side of it, I think obviously has roots in my childhood, as you heard, right? And understanding that we are different and certain people are othered more than other demographics of people and that that has consequences to livelihoods, to the opportunities that were given, to the access that were given, et cetera. And that could be life-changing, right? And I think that moment came my first year at (laughs) Stanford when I got there. And I think I may have told you this story at some point in my life, but Mm -hmm. I had grown up with the understanding in my very, you know, brown and community that weed was bad. Weed was terrible. Weed was the devil. (laughs) If you you smoked weed, it's going to ruin your life and you're going to end up in jail or you're going to end up dead. And I believed it. I was like, I'm never touching that. I never touched it growing up. I was like, nope. I saw how, you know, for the most part, it was true. Friends, you know, were getting caught with this drug and they were being suspended and expelled and sent to alternative school and ending up incarcerated. I was like, oh no, it was tearing away up families. I was like, this is terrible. Never doing it. I can't even touch it. Mm-hmm. And I got to Stanford and I think it was the first week new student orientation. You know, there are parties on campus and I look around and people are drinking out in the open.
1: <laughs> I know. <laughs> Welcome to California.
0: <laughs> drinking out on these streets. We're like police officers there, right? People are doing Smoking weed, but they're also doing other stuff. And I was so confused, Mm -hmm. so confused about what was happening. And I realized as I then went into like East Palo Alto and started working there, where the population is mostly Black, Latino, Polynesian, right? There are mostly people of color, lower income. The difference was. The backgrounds that we were coming from and what value we as a society were putting on people, right? And because of their race, because of their ethnicity, because of their income level, because of their education level, I now lived in a bubble of this privilege that I don't think had ever been extended to my family or me previously. Right? Mm-hmm. And it just felt so wrong. And it felt so wrong because at this time that I'm living in this bubble, in this almost shield of like privilege and safety, I'm still dealing with family and my brothers who are now in middle school, high school and dealing with their teachers. And they're, you know, getting written up and, you know, my mom's crying because found a little weed, right? (laughs) X, Y, Z. And I just get angrier and angrier every time I'm dealing with this and I'm seeing just like the inequity and in treatment. And so I feel like I didn't even get to enjoy <laughs> the privilege that I was now extended, nor did I want to, I think. But yeah. I think that's where it really, really deepened. Like I understood that I was different from an early age, right? We were one of the first immigrant families in Spring, Texas, in the school. I was, you know, native Spanish speaker where nobody else spoke my language. You know, like I understood those things. I was a religion that nobody else was. And for some reason, it didn't make me angry (laughs) at any of those points. It was just like, Mm -hmm. okay. And when I got to Stanford, I was like, oh, now I'm mad. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Now I am mad at how this has gone down (laughs) and how it's going down. And now I see these larger implications for it. And so that I think was the first, okay, the social impact side. I think after that, it was really a – like it wasn't anything like prescribed or any like blueprint, right, Mm -hmm. to to what happened next. It was really – a curiosity almost of people presenting opportunities or me finding out this new thing existed and being like, hmm, let me read about it and figuring out that it was cool and taking opportunities. And so what that looked like was went into education into K-12 education Mm -hmm. in East Palo Alto, so that community I was speaking about. And I worked there for a couple of years and really was embedded in the community and working with with students, with parents, with families, and seeing how the challenges that they had to go through day by day navigating this school system in a community that lived right next to one of the best school systems in the United States, right? And Mm -hmm. not really again, deepen my understanding of the systems that were at play and how we could do our best at an individual level, right from the bottom up to make things better for people. But without that top-down change, it's still gonna be incredibly hard. So that systems change. And also the realization that you know the system is actually working as it was intended to. And that was a harsh realization.
1: Jessica stayed in education for a few more years, but decided to work on the communication side. So she thought she'd put her degree to use. She quickly realized it wasn't a good fit. She said that she hated it, but learned a lot. She had to stay at her desk and draft communications policies for various schools. She felt disconnected from the students and parents. She said it felt so separate from the heart. Although she excelled at the position, she jumped on the first opportunity to leave. A friend reached out to her and asked her to join the Stanford Latino Entrepreneurship Initiative at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, aimed at raising awareness about the disparities facing Latino business owners in the U.S. in growing and scaling their businesses. Although she had never done anything like it, she knew she could figure it out. And that's what she did.
0: Then I became the first director of the actual accelerator program. And so I helped develop the curriculum, implement the program, and it's now very prestigious, successful program for Latino business owners. And I'm very proud of the work that we did there. And that is what led me to business school was being in relation with all of these entrepreneurs and understanding their challenges Mm -hmm. and meeting my first like impact investors, but also my first social entrepreneurs, like actual social entrepreneurs in the wild, right? And then saying to myself, I want to find out, let me find out, like, let me prove either this thesis validated or invalidated, I'm going to find out. And so I jumped on the opportunity to apply to this program and met the CEO of Headspace in one of the classes and that led to lunch which led to Headspace creating a position for me there where eventually I was part of the founding team for the customer success team that has now scaled out when they were starting their business-to-business side. And which, by the way, I had never done before either. <laughs> this is a theme. I had yes, never seen
1: it <laughs> I love
0: it. <laughs> either took the opportunity. I was like, I think I could do that. Didn't really understand it, but... Felt like I did a pretty good job of laying the foundation for what it would eventually be on the business to business side, but also hated it, right? <laughs> like Realized this is not what I signed up for, <laughs> but I did it. And I think I did it well. And I also was brought in to work on what they at that time was their philanthropy work. So it was kind of a dual role, which is really why I took the opportunity. That eventually led to the creation of the social impact team at Headspace, which I think in retrospect was probably my biggest win there because it was one of the first like social impact teams like at a tech company that I know of. And yeah. that's a pretty big win to like get resources and get people aligned to this being important enough to have its own department, its own resources, even the name social impact, right, versus philanthropy was right. a big win because philanthropy almost in a lot of corporate spaces is seen as like an afterthought. And we were so intentional about making sure that it could stand alone and that it was viewed as a core aspect of the business at that point and moving forward. Yeah, And that was huge for me. They now have a chief social impact officer. Like it's really cool like to see some of your ideas implemented and then to see what it's grown into. So I'm really proud of that.
1: That's amazing. Yeah. I just love that. And it is important. And especially just when you look at the research and just talking to our peers, that is exactly what Gen Z and millennials want. It's really important when they are looking at organizations that they have a social impact. The word philanthropy doesn't encompass the kind of work that I think these generations want to see, not just providing money for a specific issue, but really trying to like do the systemic change work, really trying to understand how we're going to affect change because what we've done in the past hasn't gotten us as far as where we'd like to be. I love that you did that work, and I would love to learn more about the work you're doing today.
0: I love the work that I'm doing today. So <laughs> officially, my title is I'm the Chief Investment Officer at uh, an organization called New Media Ventures, and we are in early-stage seed funds that invest in progressive entrepreneurs that are really trying to address some of these systemic challenges that we face in the United States as a society, as a larger community. And I've been doing this for the past two years. And one, it's been a journey getting here. And I know we'll talk about that a little bit. But yeah. I think <laughs> the, what I appreciate about it is that we are investing our capital and allocating capital in populations and maybe in areas that are seen as riskier or not as profitable as your typical venture capitalist uh, would. And that means that we invest in a lot of Black, Latino entrepreneurs. And we also invest in areas that are close to my heart. So we invest in media and narrative, right? We invest in advocacy and organizing. So a lot of those people that are on the ground doing the work to pass legislation or build movements and coalitions of people. Uh, we invest in civic technology. So technology that can be used for good and for public good and political tech. So how do we make elections and democracy more accessible and more I think more transparent and more reflective of who deserves to participate in this Mm -hmm. country and who deserves a voice in this country. And I think it's a beautiful mix of all the things that I really care about. And I love that we get to take those risks. And I love that we're trying our best to merge the Profit with purpose. Angle, you know, a lot of social entrepreneurs, a lot of impact investors are trying to figure out, right? I do appreciate that I get to be part of that experiment,
1: right? Yeah, (laughs) yeah, because I love that. I remember when I was in college. I'm not sure if you took that class on social entrepreneurship. It's like a one credit class. I remember it was just a lecture, (laughs) and I remember it changed my life. Like I remember thinking about the combination of the two, just because. I grew up in the nonprofit world. My dad's in the nonprofit world, grandmother. And so there was a lot of fundraising. And you are just, you rely on all these donors. And I just saw the challenges that they dealt with. And I was thinking, wow, you can have a profit generating model. And if you make your own money, then you make your own decisions about how you invest in the people that you care about and how to create systemic change. And so the whole social entrepreneurial idea just kind of opened my eyes to this new world. And I found it fascinating. I even had, I remember, on my resume as an interest of mine. And someone asked about it and I was like, oh crap, I need to remove that because I never did
0: anything with it. (laughs) I think I was fascinated for the same reasons that you were. I think I went in a little bit more cynical and skeptical. I was skeptical that there were models that could actually exist That really were true to we can do both, or the bottom, double bottom line, or triple bottom line, right? I was like, how (laughs) (laughs) like who's doing it and how? It's still, I think, a a younger field relative to you know other industries. Mm -hmm. And I think we're still trying to figure it out how feasible it is, right, in the long term, but Like I said, I'm excited to be a part of the people that are trying to figure it out, right? (laughs) Because it is fascinating. And I think if we are going to make the changes that we need to make in this country and as a world, then we are going to have to upend some of these structures and systems, right, that currently exist that have allowed... The inequities that we see to foster and has facilitated some of those inequities. And so you got to switch it up.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you have an example of a specific area that you are trying to tackle with your team when it comes to social entrepreneurial space and the systemic issues that are might be cutting up against that?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. So when you asked that question, I directly went to, so we have a grant-making arm, and we work a lot with the nonprofits, specifically in the media space, Mm -hmm. to find new models of revenue generation and sustainability. So as you know, the media landscape, again, especially in the United States, because that's where we focus, is full of misinformation, disinformation. And part of that is because a lot of these revenue models and a lot of these fiscal structures that they operate under are still owned by other entities or other individuals that may have their own interests. And some could argue that that doesn't allow for the transparency or the authenticity that we need in journalism, in the media, in the press, etc. Mm-hmm. And part of the challenge is we need money to operate which is what you were speaking about earlier right mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> so for profit model makes sense if we can make a lot of money off of it and so we've seen a rise in nonprofit media that over the past 2 years that I've been at new media ventures and it's been fascinating to work with these entrepreneurs and these founders that are thinking through different models of revenue generation and how do we operate as our own entities and how do we fact check our journalism, how do we kind of stand on our own, Mm -hmm. regardless of who our funders are, regardless of the pressures that we're getting, because what we need are messengers and mediums that communities can trust to get their information and to know and understand that it is true and that we won't kind of waver in our work. Yeah. And so that's been really great because we've seen the dangers of the other side of that already, right, in in our elections in and just what it does to mindsets and the radicalization of the young people. And we're seeing mm-hmm. it every day. It's led to the rise of sexism and really terrible behaviors so that's one area that I am curious we invest in both sides so we invest in the nonprofit side but we also invest in the for-profit side and so I'm curious to see how both of these as we work with these founders how both of these sides are figuring out what those lines are and and truly disrupting the industry but also the models that they've depended on historically. And so that's been interesting and so I think
1: that's a space to watch for sure. Yeah, thank you for sharing. I did not know much about that, so learn something new. <laughs> this is great. Now I want to check in with you in the like year and ask you what's going on. <laughs> Can you talk to me about your purpose, about your why? You Why do you think you're here on this earth from a professional and personal perspective?
0: Very deep question. I don't know if I have the full answer to it, mm-hmm. but I do think... That if I were to have to name a purpose, that I found a contentment almost in feeling like I'm here to impact the people closest to me, Mm. or to try to impact, maybe break generational curses (laughs) and traumas (laughs) to the best of my ability. And by doing so, in demonstrating that we can do that and that we can be better human beings. So I don't think my purpose is in one, you know, lane of work or that our purpose is singular. Yeah. Right? I think our purpose is evolving and I think as I've grown and gone through so many different like career trajectories but also different life events I've realized that I wish that we as a society could understand or be more empathetic to is that sometimes you know, our existence isn't for a grand purpose, right? <laughs> There's almost this feeling of like exceptionalism, right? With, oh, they're bound to do great things, or, but sometimes our purpose is to just be here mm. and to just be. Human beings that are making it through day by day. And hopefully, day by day, we're learning and we're growing. And I think that's been a journey for me to take to get to that point to be like, maybe my purpose is just to be here.
1: (laughs) Just to live, just to live your life, (laughs) to show up as yourself. Yeah. Maybe my purpose is
0: just trying to break these generational traumas as best as I can, right? And showing up every day. Maybe that's it because there was a point where my identity was so tied to my work. There was a point where my identity was so tied to how useful I could be to other people in my life. And so it's been a lot of work to get to the point to just say, maybe my purpose is to be here.
1: Yeah. I love that. I always end with final thoughts. So if you have any final thoughts to share, I'd love to hear them.
0: Oh, I have so many final thoughts think I'll share so I'll share two. I think the first one is around just be the humanity of our journeys and how they're very like real and I think they're always evolving and just uh, the figuring out how to balance the humanity of ourselves with who we wanna be but also with how we live our day to day and I was thinking a lot about that in, in preparation for like this conversation and reflecting on my own journey around how sometimes I think we try to like hide parts of ourselves to fit expectations or to fit what we think people want us to be, especially when we're talking about professionalism, where you know the conversations around mental health are, are so much I think more open now, but in the conversations around allowing you know people to show up as like their true selves or authentic selves into work. but that's still so hard it's so especially hard. for black Latino like employees to feel a sense of like safety at work and to feel like they can still be like human and when like there are real life things right like if you see me on paper, I am a Stanford graduate right who is now leading an impact investment fund. And you're like, wow, like perfect Latina, right? Like model Latina. And it's like, yeah, but I'm also a person that has incredible like survivor's guilt. Right? Like like incredible like guilt. I'm also a person that every month flies out to see her brother in prison yeah. to like visit, right? And that has like almost quarterly breast check-ins at the breast center because, you know, we have these like health issues. Like there's so many aspects of our life, right. That don't fit this like mold. And I think especially for black Latina, like women, it's so hard to feel like we can truly show all of those sides of us Mm -hmm. and, and still be, Seen or received with the open arms, at least in the professional world that we would like to be. And so that's one thing. It's just like the continual, like, involvement of that perspective and the continual, I think, for me, search for the humanity in all yeah. of the systems. And I think the second thing is goes back to the title of your podcast, right? The No Straight Path. And I laugh at it because I'm like, oh, it's a, such a great name, <laughs> such a great name. That if I had to write a book, that could have been the name, <laughs> or maybe it was just no path, right? Yeah, that some people, and probably more than we think, don't even know that there is a path, and sometimes that is daunting, and sometimes that is that can lead to devastating situations and outcomes, unfortunately, right? When you don't know what you don't know, and there hasn't been someone to model or someone to like guide and teach you. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, although probably the exception, it can be really beautiful. And I think that's what, again, in the reflection of the journey, I'm like, I didn't have a blueprint. I did see how not having a blueprint impacted people I love. You know, one of my brothers is incarcerated, another brother, you know, didn't go to college even though he wanted to. Another brother did eventually go to college, but after a lot of hurt, right? But they eventually found their way. Some of them are finding their way. They're finding their path. My older brother did end up getting his bachelor's. He now works with me, right? And he's mm-hmm. one of the the kindest yeah. really beings that I know. And if you had met him in high school, you would have been like, "This dude is." never going to be that person, right? And so there's almost... So I see the consequences of that, Mm -hmm. but I also see the beauty of, but he found his way, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it, it it was ugly, you know? And it had lots of twists and turns, but he found his way. And I have hope that even the people that have no path and no blueprint can find their way. And I hope that we can see also the beauty of not having something maybe set for us. Like, for me... Not having a blueprint almost allowed for a very like creative, <laughs> very unpredictable <laughs> journey. And part of it was because of the ignorance that it provided, right? Like you can't be scared of something you don't know, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> and so <laughs> and so there's there's like the beauty of that. And I hope that again we're empathetic to people who maybe don't have as beautiful journeys as some of us do because of the privileges we've been afforded, at least yet. Right. And the hope or even the desire to help them. And then on the flip side, for those that didn't have a blueprint and found their way, just the appreciation of that journey.
1: Oh my God. I love that. Mm -hmm. I love that so much.
0: That's not to add like five more minutes to the podcast. (laughs)
1: No, this was Incredible, Jessica. Like your whole journey, who you are as a human. We have not connected deeply like this ever. Yeah. So thank you for just coming on the podcast and sharing your story. I know it's going to inspire so many people. And I'm just really excited about everything you're doing and everything you're going to do. So, thank you. I
0: love that. And also shout out Diana. <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah. because speaking of like dots my right that connect yeah. throughout like journeys that you don't even make connections right like oh you meet people in different points of your your journey and the road and it's like oh you were one of my closest friends roommates yes. <laughs> right year and it's like now 12 years later here we are on this podcast and it's beautiful it
1: please send her my love my freshman college roommate she was the best she was so sweet and we just got along very well so it was there was no drama it was great, it was great. <laughs> love that thank you for listening to another episode of no straight path the highs the lows and the lessons learned Remember to share this episode with friends and family. And if you like what you hear, please go on to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts to rate the show. It helps other listeners find no straight path. Let's spread the message, everyone, and make sure that millennials feel less alone. There's no straight path in your career and life, and that's okay. It's honestly what makes the journey exciting. So let's get inspired together. I hope you have a great week.